Welcome to Purpose to Performance, and today's episode is a little bit different. I'm going to put myself in the chair so that our listeners get to find out a little bit about me and and my background. When I was considering this, I thought about it, and really my career falls into two halves, um, what I like to call my pre-midlife crisis and my post-midlife crisis. So today um, we're focusing on the first half, which was my tra- my career in the travel industry, where I spent 18 years at one company, Air Tours, and the journey that I went through there. So I was thinking, who would be the best grand inquisitor to interview me and to put me on the spot? I had quite a big shortlist of engaging characters from that era, but I chose to go with Matt Cheatham a fellow Mancunian, also did uh, an MBA, successful businessman, and a frustrated support sportsman like myself. Without any further ado, over to you, Matt. Well, hello. Uh, I don't think I've ever been called a Grand Inquisitor before. It makes me feel a little bit like uh, Jeremy Paxman. Um, <laughs> Andrew and I have known each other quite a while. It's We're a similar age. Um, we both from the Manchester area, although our paths didn't cross until I joined Air Tours in 1988, I believe. Um, And then we had a a wild, exciting period of our lives together. And as Andrew says, we both went our kind of separate ways and uh, but have maintained a relationship and our friendship since then and it's been uh, you know we've both done very different things post air tours but it's been a an interesting ride for for both of us before we get into your air tours life tell me a little bit about your background and your childhood well i i was born in buxton derbyshire both my parents worked my father was an architect mother was an ophthalmologist Elder brother, um, younger sister. Uh, my brother and I were close in age. So there was only 17, 18 months between us. So, and my sister came along about six or seven years later. Went to the local school, and right from the early days, I was just a sports billy. Absolutely crazy about sport. Uh, loved football. Loved all sports really. So that was my primary focus. So then I switched to to Manchester Grammar, which was a, a fantastic school. I mean, one of the most prestigious schools in the, certainly in the north of England very very let me in. <laughs> yeah it was it was full of very very bright people and I sort of scraped into being the the dumbest guy in the dumbest class um, most most kids did their their own levels a year early so they got an extra year to do Oxford and Cambridge scholarships but that certainly wasn't me and having sort of glided through school, apart from flunking the odd exam, without really having to make any effort and being considered reasonably bright, it was a bit of a shock to me to, to then be in a, an environment where I really couldn't compete academically, intellectually. So I guess I used to be uh, disruptive. I used to deflect from my lack of ability or, or rather than you know knuckling down and being motivated by it I, I, I became a bit distracted and just doubled down on my sport now I was playing sport well various sports for the school and also club rugby as well outside of it I, I rather wasted the opportunity and now I feel guilty about it when I think back you know the sacrifices my parents made 
to enable me to go there because you know, whilst I, I had some scholarship support, it was still quite a burden financially on my, on my parents. And yeah, you, my you must was, have been under. I mean, Manchester Grammar is a little bit of a hot house educationally. You must have been under some pressure from the teachers to. Uh, for want of a better word, book your ideas up. You've got more, you know, you, there's more in you than this. How did you react to that? I, I think, I mean, the reality was... Were you past I, redemption? <laughs> no, not quite. But I think the teaching was very much orientated towards really bright kids who were really motivated. You know, the teachers responded to that. But if you weren't, they didn't really reach out. The only teacher that I formed any sort of deeper bond with was the head of sports he you know I, I had a rocky path I was quite a I was quite good at sport but but also I was quite cocky and arrogant about it and uh, you know I, I clashed with some of my coaches and you know I got banned from certain teams at, at different times but you know the, the head of sport reached out and, and developed a bond and he it was him who introduced me to to club rugby which was what I needed because it knocked the cockiness and the arrogance out of me. You know, I, I, I started playing Colts rugby, which is what, eight, under, under 19 at the age of 14. And I was a very small 14 year old. I very quickly got it belted out of me because rugby back then was quite different from rugby today, where it's quite well refereed and there isn't a lot of uh, gratuitous violence, but there certainly was in those days. Yeah. Um, yeah did you I, learn anything about motivating others and being man- being managed by others. I, I'm talking about the team captain and things like that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I, and I, I think, you know, so many people do nurture their early thoughts and views and skills on, on leadership and, and team ethics and, and motivation through playing team sports. And so, yeah, it was fundamental for me. And I, I did captain various teams and learnt the importance of, bringing the whole team together just that togetherness and you know sacrificing your performance for the purpose of the team I I, I did learn an awful lot in that respect okay um, and then how did you kick on so to speak using the sporting analogy from Manchester Grammar where did you where was your next port of call well I was down to do engineering at Loughborough University uh, I had no interest in becoming an engineer. Uh, I think I selected my A-levels of mass physics and chemistry on the basis that they, they required the least amount of work and therefore I had more time for sport because my my real ambition was to try and get into professional sports. And yeah, I like, for, because at the time it was the preeminent university for uh, sport. Exactly. You know me too well. I cruised through my A-levels, didn't get great grades, didn't get into Loughborough, so I had to go through clearing which was complicated because the day after I took my A-levels, I just went to Manchester Airport and, and jumped on a Laker Airways flight to New York, left my parents a note saying, I've gone to the States, I'll be back soon. And, uh, <laughs> and I spent I spent oof, six months odd messing around, travelling around the States. So, yeah, I, I think in the end it was my brother who who went through the clearing process for me. And, and when I finally came back from the States and I tell between my legs, having exhausted all my uh, lifetime savings, I went to Coventry University and studied engineering there. Did you did you see that through? I didn't graduate, mainly because I had a road traffic accident in my final year, just approaching finals. 
I was late for a rugby practice and decided to try and sprint across a dual carriageway, hurdle the central reservation, but I slightly mistimed it and ended up doing a triple backflip over a Ford Granada doing about 40 miles an hour. So that was uh, the end of my uh, university career and also the end of my competitive sporting career. And how long was the recuperation from that? Probably six months in uh, full rehabbing, snapped all the ligaments in my knee. Yeah, I was not not in a good state. You know, I was physically damaged, but also mentally, uh, that realisation that that whole sporting dream was gone and I'd just not graduated. So I was left thinking, well, what's ahead of me? And I, was, I remember being quite depressed, very down. And, and, and it was a bit of a downward spiral. And, you what know, got you just, through that? Uh, great support from my parents. Probably, probably my parents more than anything else. And, and just time. And that, that sort of inner resilience you know, kicked in and said, well, listen, nobody else is going to come along and offer something on a plate to you. If you're going to, you know, you've got your whole life ahead of me, your career's in your hands. It's up to you to do something about it. It took took some time, but I, I got my head straight and got on with life. Yeah. Fair to say, bright kid, um, wild spirit. Yes. You've done three years. Your body's a bit broken. You come out of it. You've not graduated. What do you do? Well, the conclusion I came to, and during this time I was working, I was labouring on a building site and fitting bathrooms and kitchens and driving JCBs and things. So it's like real life skills then. Absolutely. And and I really enjoyed that. All this sort of sporting and thing and everything else. I I had a great work ethic, which which I got from my parents. I mean, they were real grafters. And, you know, that, that more than anything served me well in everything I've done. You know, in later life, in you know, I went back to studying, which we'll get into, and and throughout my career, I've 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 always had a really strong work ethic and been quite adaptable. So, yeah, I, I I did all sorts of different jobs, met some really interesting people, had a lot of great fun, and learnt quite a lot of life skills and grew up a lot. But then, yeah, my conclusion was, if I'm going to start a career, it should be something I'm interested in and, and enjoy. And the only thing I could think of outside of sport, which I could no longer do, was was travel. Because I'd loved travelling around the States and you know, family holidays with my parents around Europe, camping around Europe was, was great. So I thought, well, I'll get a job in travel. Yeah. And uh, how did you stumble across Airtools? I had a friend in the town who worked in a travel agency. So I discussed it with, with her. She kindly gave me a couple of old editions of the Travel Weekly or Travel Trade Gazette or whatever it was back in the day, uh, which had a job section in the back. So I literally went through those. I think I applied for a dozen jobs. I got three interviews and I got offered three jobs and two were in travel agencies. And the third one was in a tour operator called Air Tours. And I just sounded thought that tour operating sounded a bit more interesting than travel agency. So that was literally the, <laughs> the, the extent of my career planning and uh, due diligence. Well, the, the other element of air tours that uh, maybe the listeners won't know is it was basically in the middle of nowhere. Air tours itself was, uh, the tour operator was in uh, a couple of rooms above a shop on the high street in, in Haslinden. And there were, I think there were, I was trying to count it back the other day, I think there were 12 or 13 people 
in the tour operation when I started. They had a few travellers. They had a few shops by at that yeah. point stage, yeah. didn't they? But, so it was really a very small family business, um, very local to Lancashire. And, and I think probably for listeners, you know, at that stage, it would have been very small, very low turnover, you know, very low profits. And we'll learn this over the course of the, the podcast, ended up being just outside the FTSE 100. So from small from small acorns, a very large company evolved over a period of time. So, you know, at the start, what was your first role there? I was an operations executive, which sounded like a grand title, but titles really didn't mean anything. As I say, there was there was only a dozen people, and it was very very entrepreneurial. There were no systems. This was pre computers. It was basically a bunch of phones. If the phone rang, you answered it. You sold a holiday. You went on the telex and telex the reservation through to to the agent in uh, in Spain. And then, you you know, you wrote out the tickets and then somebody would have to drive down to the airport and deliver the tickets. And it, it was it was very, very hands on. And what, what, what I noticed first was everybody else were they were all very local and they were really nice people, really bright people. But they were there for a job. You know, they 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 hadn't made a conscious decision, I don't think, to get into travel. They just were looking for a job and, and that's how they found themselves there. So. Yeah, I was the only person from outside the uh, the immediate valley. Valley, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and yeah. So I, I I found it a bit of a challenge first up to 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 fit in. I had to try and disguise my my Manchester accent and uh, try and learn a bit of Lancashire. It was mainly female, so I think there were only two other blokes in the office, one in accounts, and uh, and the the father of the founder, actually, Ben Crossland, who was 60-something. So it was it was a bit of bit of a bizarre environment. Um, did you have what did you have any expectations at that point other than I want to work in travel? No. No, I mean it was or aspirations. Yeah. I mean, was there a, you know, in 10 years' time I want to be running it or I want to be doing this or the other? Or have you have you just basically stumbled into it and let's see where it takes me? Absolutely that. As I say. I think like, a, you know, a lot of my brother knew from the age of four that he wanted to be a vet. And a lot of my mates had a very clear vision. And certainly at Manchester Grammar, you know, people knew they wanted to become a lawyer or an accountant or a chief executive or whatever. I, I never did. And so, no, I didn't have any expectations. I just thought, well, this will be interesting. I'll learn and we'll see what's going on in the travel industry. And I, I had no expectations, really. I just stepped into it and sought out a lot of knowledge, tried to become an expert very quickly. And it was great in that respect because it was so entrepreneurial. You could have a go at everything. So I used to go and spend my day off in one of the travel agencies to learn how the travel agency business worked. And then I learned there was something called business travel. So I went on a business travel course to learn how to do the the airfares and ticketing and stuff like that. But as I say, it was all... It sounds odd, I guess, to to certainly millennials listening today just won't understand it. You, you hadn't researched or anything else, but this was all way before the internet. So it, there wasn't that much opportunity to do a lot of research about companies. Uh, so, you, yeah, you just tend to step into something and, and see where it led. But w- once I started, I really got the bug for it and I was super committed, 
seeking out knowledge, wanting to to understand everything that was going on in our business. And then I started looking at, you know, what other businesses were doing in, in this industry and trying to learn about the industry as a whole. When did you move from being, uh, I think you termed it an executive, uh, I'm really interested in when did you start managing people uh, and how did that develop and what did you learn about yourself? Well, the company was growing really quickly. I mean, I think, you know, I joined early on in the year and there was a dozen people. By the end of the year, there were probably 30 people. And then the following year, there were probably 100 people. So it was growing very quickly. So they needed people to take leadership roles. And and I was keen. I proved my worth. I got the work ethic. I was knowledgeable. And I got on with people. And, you know, again, from that sporting experience, you learn how to to lead people, set a vision, motivate, support, encourage. And so I ended up running the operations team and then I started running the airports team and then I started running the customer service teams. So within a couple of years, I probably was had a team of I don't know, 50, 60 people. And it was quite interesting because they were from all walks of life. You know, as we as we started to grow, we started to exhaust the valley of, of, of resources. So then we started to get people from outside the the immediate vicinity coming in and people with experience in travel. And obviously that provided the opportunity for me to learn more. So as as the company moved from its entrepreneurial phase to more formalization, setting departments up, systems, introducing the first computers, et cetera, we started to get IT professionals and professional accountants and marketeers, et cetera. So, and they generally came from, other industries so again it was an opportunity to learn from them and it started to shape how the business was structured yeah did you feel threatened by these people coming in or was it was it was it purely and how did they react to you as well no i think i was i was welcoming because i could see that the diversity they they brought by bringing in different people with different perspectives added to the culture and the richness of the environment, the working environment. And also on a personal perspective, they were people I could learn from. I could learn, I watched how they behaved as, as, as managers. I watched, you know, I, I asked a lot of questions, you know, developed my technical understanding and competencies. But as it carried on and, and the company got bigger, and by this time I'm talking, you know, a couple of hundred people and we moved into a purpose-built, well, purpose-built, it was an old mill. <laughs> Which is when I arrived. I think I'll, yeah. I'll tell everybody I was employee number 220. I don't know whether I was or I wasn't, but it was that kind of fairly early stage when it was transitioning from entrepreneurial to formalisation. But it, that was clearly a journey that we both went on. Yeah, and at that time, about the time you were coming in, I'd been a manager for quite a while. I'd had a couple of promotions, but then there seemed to be a period where as a new opportunity arose, it was automatically filled from somebody outside. And they would come in on a higher package with a company car and, and everything else. So there was a period when I, I became a little bit disgruntled with that and a bit resentful yeah. that, that there was greater value put on experience in other organisations, whether they be other travel organisations or other, other sectors, rather than expertise in our product and our consumer and our business model. And, you know, I'd end up training a lot of these people and helping them on board. So, there were, yeah, there were times when there was a bit of resentment when 
my career advanced really quickly and then seemed to plateau for a little bit. And uh, yeah, I, I remember getting quite frustrated for a time. Yeah. No, did you cover my Astra GTE? Is that, is that what it was? I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, there's quite a few. Yeah, it, as I say, I, I, I made a lot of friends, but internally, by this time, I, I, I had become ambitious. And I guess what was would previously driven my sort of sporting uh, endeavours was now driving my career. And I was no longer in just, let, let's see what happens. I was now thinking, yeah, you know, I, I can perform here. I like this. There's opportunities. I want to, I want to advance. So I was, yeah, became very motivated. Uh, at, at what point did you think or feel that you needed to further your knowledge and skills? And I'm talking about your decision to uh, go and do an MBA. There's a funny story behind that because it wasn't actually my decision. I, I it never really occurred to me that I was lacking anything but I'd, I I had a situation a few years earlier where I had a real clash with my boss and uh, as I say I was probably you know quite arrogant and cocky in those days and yeah just didn't respect my boss didn't think they were very good at their, their job so so we clashed and I, I got to the point where I was almost about to be dismissed and I took the opportunity to go and talk to the MD and I sort of laid out and said, look, I'm really frustrated. I, you know, I love the company. I felt I've you know, been really loyal. I think I've got a long way to go. I can contribute more, but I just can't get on with this person. So if this is the only option, it, it looks like I'm on my way out. And I'm very grateful. He, he spent time with me and, you know, we, we didn't, didn't immediately resolve my problem, but became, in effect, my mentor. And this is, this is Hugh Collinson. Yeah. And uh, who was the MD who'd come in as a, you know the first I think professional MD uh, brought in by by the founder David Crossland uh, to organise the business and professionalise it. So yeah, I developed a relationship with him. He became my mentor, and it was probably you know a couple of years later when you guys started arriving. He called me in and he said, "Listen, I think you know the, the company's on this trajectory. We're going to be a very very big." travel company we're going to be the be- the biggest and best in the UK and to do that we need to bring in all this fresh talent and, and new knowledge and new expertise but we also want to develop people from within and uh, because that's going to help keep some of the the core knowledge of of where the business came from and and its ethos you know and the, and the culture piece uh, and we think you've got more to offer, so we'd like you to go off and and do an MBA. So I, I was very fortunate they they sponsored me to go and do a an MBA, an executive MBA course at Manchester Business School for three years, whilst I continued working. It, I mean, this is clearly where there are parallels because I joined on the promise of being sent off to do an MBA by them. So I think the MD at the time, Hugh Collinson, should take a lot of credit for having the foresight in a relatively small business to both try and attract new talent and develop existing talent. Um, and I think he, he you know, the, the sadly passed away earlier this year, but he, he should take a lot of the credit for that because he helped build that team. Absolutely. And I, looking back on it now, you know, I can see so clearly that, you know, the company, that growth would have just faltered had we not brought in that expertise, that knowledge, 
to continue the growth. And that was really one of David Crossland's great skills in that he got he got the most value out of all the people at every stage of the growth. But he recognised when when we needed to bring in new skills and new talent. And, you know, there was never any ego for him. He didn't have to be front and centre. He knew, he knew he wasn't the right guy to be MD. And so he brought somebody in who was and, and, and gave them the space to operate. And, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. Hugh Collinson was was responsible for a lot of great things in, in that period through formalization and through flotation and becoming a public company. Yeah. Uh, him and a number of others were, were uh, had, had great foresight in that respect. Can, can we talk about the flotation 87? Because it, it was clearly quite a, a step for a relatively small regional tour operator to float. I'm just wondering from your perspective, how, if at all, that changed the culture and ethos of the business? It's it's quite a long time ago, so it's, it's hard to remember the exact thing. I remember being very excited about it, and I remember being very proud because you know when when we were a very small company, and I, I used to ring up say Thompson now Tui, who were the number one, and you know we used to have this system of helping each other out with what we called mutual aid seats. If if somebody missed our flight, we'd ring them up and they'd give us a seat so that somebody didn't have to miss out on the holiday. And I remember in the early days ringing up. Thompson and, and saying, oh, you know, I'm some, from, from, from Air Tours. And they go, Air Tours? Never heard of you. Can't help you. And then probably only well, 87, so this is only six, five, six years later, we were a public company and we were big and we were mainstream and we were certainly one of the top five. So, yeah, feeling great pride. I think it obviously did change the culture of the organisation in that it was then given that we were a big company and we behaved in a very professional manner, not that we hadn't done before, but, you know, there's more focus on compliance and structures. It was much more public. You know, we were in the newspapers, we were on the TV. So it did change the culture, but not so much internally, I don't think. Yeah. I'd just like to talk to you about some of the the key developments of Air Tours and, and your reflections on it. And, and, not necessarily in any particular order, but, you know, we set up an airline, which ended up from memory having 68 aircraft. Having sold our retail chain because we didn't have critical mass, we then had a fallout with Lumpoly, which made distribution critical, and we ended up setting up a large retail chain, eventually branded Going Places. Failed takeover of owners abroad, but some consequences of that. The setting up of the, a specialist division, the acquisitions in Scandinavia, um, and then vertically integrating, owning the hotels, the cruise ships and so forth. So just talk, talk to me a little bit about your take on, on that and how it, how it changed the company from being a tour operator uh, to being a vertically integrated, you know, and one of the largest travel companies in the world. Yeah, I think undoubtedly one of the reasons for the success of the business over its whole lifetime was, was David Crossland's talent uh, for one understanding the customer, being able to read the market, but also then to develop a really focused strategy of what needed to be in place to serve that market, serve that customer in in, in the most efficient way. And you know, we built built the early stage of the business by making it, it was pre the whole low cost concept, but we were very much the affordable provider of holidays. 
And I think as we grew scale, it was either in response to something that was 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 frustrating the growth. So the airline was there just weren't enough independent airlines to to contract the seats that that, that we needed to continue growing. So it made sense to start the airline. You know, there was another pivotal moment was was the collapse of Intersun in in 1991 after the first Gulf War and, yeah. and, and recession. And again, this was typical David Crossan. He was so so hands on, so focused, so in the detail and the moment of the business. I mean, I, I remember that afternoon we heard they'd failed, and literally, we, I remember all being called into the meeting room sort of whole management team and we said right this has happened this is our opportunity we're going to go out there and we're going to buy all the beds right you're off to Malta you're off to Benidorm you're off to to Greece you're off to Portugal and literally we were just dispatched you know yeah. there's there was either a seat on the back of an aeroplane or in the flight deck or the, you know, a private jet for some of them and we were just parachuted into resorts yeah and going v- very very entrepreneurial in that I mean, yeah. I remember the, the impact on the company's profits that year. The previous year, the company had made a profit for tax of five million, and in '91, which was a difficult year because of the Gulf War, uh, the company made twenty-five million. Yeah. So that yeah. was a, a slight aside. The one huge strategic error we made, and this was uh, my name is partly on this, is that the chairman, uh, I think. Uh, Harry Coe and Hugh Collinson came with me. The four of us turned up to see the administrator or liquidator of Intersum. And we went to their offices in, in Bromley. And the huge strategic mistake we made was we didn't buy their IT system. Because what then happened, as you know, is it allowed their former management to set up again using that IT system. And that became a major competitor. And we had the opportunity to bought the IT system and just stopped that from happening. So that was a major mistake, strategic error that we made. Exactly. But, you, you know, you learn from those things. But I, th- I think on the positive side, we were two, three days ahead of, of any of the other competitors, you know, the, the, the market leader, Thompson. You know, by the time they'd activated, they had teams of people in resort who could have gone out and bought these beds. But by the time the idea had sparked and the management team or the directors met with the management team, the management team talked to resorts. We'd been and gone. We'd, yeah. we'd been and bought those beds. And, and that was, yeah, as I say, a product of David Crossan's entrepreneurial vision, uh, but also the dedication and adaptability and commitment of the team, because, you know, we just literally go out there and get the job done. And uh, so, yeah, that, that was pivotal. I think then the, the specialist holidays, was was recognizing that the market was maturing and and that people had been to, you know, they'd done Benidorm and then they'd done Mallorca and then they'd been to Greece and Portugal and they were looking for different things. So, yeah, I remember bringing out the the two hundred ninety nine pound fortnight in Barbados, and again that was a pivotal moment yeah. because you know we we suddenly exploded in, in in the market and really invented low cost long haul holidays for the masses. Indeed, yeah. And everybody else followed, but we led the market by quite some distance. And then, yeah, then then the start of the the major acquisitions in terms of hotels and then other travel aid, uh, tour operators, travel companies. I remember being dispatched to to Stockholm for a couple of months to manage the integration with the um, Scandinavian Leisure Group, yeah, uh, which was the market leader in 
in in Stockholm. And I, I remember going over there and I was still only probably late 20s, maybe 30. And uh, a lot of very senior people. This, this was business that had a fantastic pedigree. It had been around for 30 years. And most of the you know senior management directors had been there 30 years. And they were fairly reserved, typical what I would call, you know, Scandinavians, not easy to get to know and, and quite sceptical of, of this uh, fairly aggressive northern UK tour operator. And, you know, I was sent over as a young MBA graduate uh, business guru to tell them how we were going to integrate them into our into our business. So yeah. that was quite a challenging piece of work. Again, a slight aside. I mean, we've not really talked about the founder, Crossland, who was both brilliant, but had, you know, like all things, strengths and weaknesses. On the wall in his office was a framed envelope where he had agreed the deal to buy Scandinavian Leisure Group £50 million. And it was literally on the back of an envelope and they both signed it. And that was framed on his wall. Yeah, there were a few. I remember a few deals like that. (laughs) Yes. This was part of the chairman's vision. I want to, you know, which eventually left to our the, the company's downfall. But I want to run the largest integrated travel business in the world, which seemed fanciful when we were a small business in in you know in a valley in, in Lancashire, but increasingly became the dream of everybody. Yeah, it's funny, you know, looking back on it, it seems incredible. But when you were in it, it was just what you did. It's just where you were day to day and uh you know i count myself as incredibly fortunate just to have by chance landed a job in that little startup company with absolutely no idea that going to end up on the board of one of the companies in the biggest travel group in the world yeah so talk to me about cruise ships and your involvement there oh yeah that was another one 95 i think it was shortly shortly after we bought SAS and done the integration and then we were launching again people had done long haul so what was next and and prior to that the domain of cruising and cruise liners was very much for the for the upper classes departing from Southampton off to New York with you know five-star luxury and uh, Cross and again thought I'm going to democratize this and bring it to the masses and so bought two or three three cruise ships and uh, we started a cruise line again it was somebody within the company John Drysdale contemporary of ours who was given the project and, and did a fantastic job of putting the whole thing together I was sent down to to Mallorca which was the home port for for these uh, these cruise ships which were doing tours around the med I, I went down there for a year and set up all the operations for the home port, you know, so everything from getting 6,000 people from 26 different flights arriving in Palmer Airport from 10 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, onto three different cruise ships with their baggage, getting 6,000 people off, of which, you know, some of them capturing flights back to the UK, some going off into uh, holidays on, uh, on Mallorca. Everything from customs agents, pilots, catering, cleaning. You know, there was a, an awful lot to do. And that, that was that was my Saturdays for a whole year. That's and, a big operation. Yeah, I think 600 reps on Mallorca at the time. So I was running the resort and I was also managing the agency business, which was part of the, the yeah. 
the Spanish agencies. So I had a Spanish team in the office. So yeah, is that what gave you the, the the taste for what you're now doing? You know, li- living out in Mallorca was it was it that experience that made you think you know actually I'd like to base myself out of here longer term? Yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah, I made some some great friends, fell in love with Mallorca. The family came down with me. My kids were really small then. I think uh, about one, three, and five. And I could see right then, you know, just what a great lifestyle it offered for for children growing up. And so it definitely set a seed in my mind that we would return. Yeah. And talking of returns, all good things come to an end. You were dragged back to uh, uh, Lancashire. Uh, I think, were you then overseas director? Yeah, yeah. I came back and uh, we had a new CEO of the tour operator, Peter Rothwell, who yeah. was poached from, from Thompson Holidays. And so I was called back and overseas director running all the all the resorts for a while. So, you know, dragging it back to, you know, what you're coaching now, how, how did you, uh, all these different roles, different countries, different cultures, did you just blunder your way through it because you're bright? Uh, or, you know, did anybody help? Talk to me a little bit about that. A great deal of it was just learning on the job, thinking on your feet, stepping into it, making a mess of it, reflecting, figuring out what I need to do differently and, and get on with it. And I think that was that was quite endemic in the culture. You were given a lot of responsibility with a lot of expectation that you would deliver and, and therefore you would figure it out. I think by this stage, I was... 15 years into the company. So I knew everybody. So there was always people I could reach out to. So I could get advice. And, you know, I still had fairly a mentor relationship with, with Hugh Collinson. There was a lot of skills, a lot of knowledge I, I garnered from the MBA. Uh, and it was invaluable in that it gave me the theoretical or technical understanding of how to do things. Airtours just gave me the opportunity to practice. And with practice, I just got better. And with the pressure, you you got better fast because there were some very bright people around you that if you didn't perform, somebody else would get drafted in and they'd do it instead. Yeah. I mean, it's quite varied stuff. I mean, I seem to remember, I think we were both trained on managing disasters, weren't we? I always remember quite famously... Uh, the chairman wanted to be involved in a training exercise and and stepping outside his remit and, and you just boxing him off, which which not many people had ever dared do. Let's be clear. Yeah, I, I actually think, I don't think it was a training. I think it was a live. It was, it was a, a live one, right? Yeah, it was, it, it was a, a horrible coach crash in Turkey. I was the designated director in charge of the response, and you know you step into that role and you are in charge and everybody has a role to play and it's a real team effort. The responsibilities are immense. You know, we were dealing with incidents like hurricanes, plane crashes, coach crashes, and that that particular coach crash, we sadly lost lost lives and had some horrendous injuries where we flew medical teams out and everything else without going to the details. But yeah, as chairman, David Crossan, and he was so passionate about about the customer, he, he wanted constant updates and, you know, my role was receiving the information pushing it out making the decisions dispatching people different places yeah he, he was but my he was memory blocking, of being managed by line. you in that particular instance was that you were very clear very concise and didn't let any noise get in the way 
but it, it but it made for very clear leadership. That's my feedback to you as to how you managed that very successfully. Yeah, it's you know that fairly logical and organised, and have that ability to communicate quite clearly. And I think that's what I did with the chairman when it was late in the evening, and uh, you know he was on the phone, and and I got other calls to make and other things to do. So politely suggested it was perhaps time for him to go to bed. Which yes, I, I remember I, that. <laughs> everybody else around the table. To be fair, like, he did. <laughs> so I, I did have that sort of relationship. Still very respectful to him as chairman, but yes, but he was he was always respectful back as well. He, he you know he, he wasn't a bully or anything like that. No, absolutely not. I, I, there was no eager to him. I mean, when 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 he first started out, he was quite introverted shy guy and you know, I remember people used to talk about oh DC's coming in today and you'd have this vision of the boss and a big you know loud outgoing guy and he just wasn't that guy at all yeah. but uh, incredibly bright intense and as you say one-to-one super powerful yes I mean there's uh, again not 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 for this podcast but the you know, you could easily do something on different management and leadership style, and not everybody is Richard Branson. But you can have very different. But I mention him and maybe people like Alex Ferguson because they are, I think, people that maybe the public think are leaders. But leaders can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and motivate in very different ways. Absolutely. Um, you were then, you know, in terms of roles. I'm sure you weren't offered it. You were told it. Uh, you're now going to become the IT director when we've outsourced our IT to a company called EDS. What, what are your, you know, you're not a functional specialist in that. You know, just talk to me about how you approach that and and how you, how you felt about that. Mm, I think I I must have missed a board meeting and got voted in uh, in my absence. Yeah, uh, just, just so you know, I don't know if you know this. They told me I was going to do it, and I refused and said, "If you, I'm going to resign if you give me that." <laughs> I don't know whether you ever knew that. <laughs> so it's your fault. No, it was it was definitely the poison chalice, because as you alluded to, you know the the the, the importance of that reservation system, which powered the whole business. And you know, had we bought into Suns, we maybe have not struggled with our own reservation system. Yeah, we, well, I, we, I partly turned it down because I didn't think I had the skill set. Yeah, I think at that time, I, I, I'd, I'd realised that leading a team of people, you didn't need to be a functional expert. You know, the expertise was within the team, what this needed. And I think this, yeah, maybe not so much these days, but certainly in that era, a lot of IT departments were led by IT people and they struggled because of it because they didn't have the perhaps the leadership skills, they didn't have yeah. the strategic uh, vision, they didn't have the understanding of the business model and you know the priorities within the business. So it was a big IT department. As you say, we'd outsourced it, and it was – the outsourcing hadn't gone well. They'd transferred the, our existing IT team – into them but you know some of the brightest people didn't want to go and work for you know a big US outsourcing company so they stepped out so you know and they brought in a series of leaders from outside the industry and it, it was a challenging agenda because we've got a looming 
year 2000 problem, which again, millennials won't relate to, but the time was was a big issue for a lot of big yeah. companies as to whether their systems would actually all fall over as the clock ticked past the end of 1999 into 2000. We had a legacy platform that was creaking in terms of capacity and the product was continuing to develop and become more complex and we wanted more flexibility. So we were trying to build a new reservation system at the time as, you know, as I say, keep scaling the the legacy system until the new one was ready and get through year 2000. So it was a particularly challenging mandate Trying to change the engines at 35,000 feet. Yeah, you know, and I I remember sitting at a board meeting and the system had gone down. And, you know, when the system went down, we were losing revenue at the rate of more than £100,000 a minute. Yeah. So a a 30, 40-minute outage was pretty catastrophic at, at certain times in the cycle. And I remember rightly getting grilled by the board, you know, come on, you've just got to sort this bloody thing out. And I remember getting the IT team together and absolutely laying down the gauntlet because they they tend to live in a little bubble at times, or certainly did in those areas. It wasn't the agile era, which I think is much more connected to to the rest of the business these days. Yeah, I think it tested all elements of my leadership capabilities. But by that stage, 20 years managing people, leading teams, I'd done the MBA. I felt I was a pretty competent manager. You know, I was it also got you on the board, for the, the main board of the UK for the first time, I think, didn't it? It did. Yeah. So I just looked at it as a challenge and a learning yes. opportunity. And I did learn an awful lot because we're some very, very bright people. And I had to be absolutely on my game just to stay in the conversation. Yes. Um, but, you know, I felt, I, you know, and, and as I say, it was quite conflictual because we were in this this long-term contract, I think the contract was valued about £220 million. So it was a big contract. And we recognised that it wasn't working for us and it wasn't working for EDS, so we needed to renegotiate it. So I said about renegotiating that with our team of lawyers and their team of lawyers. And there was a lot of skill in in trying to find a a compromise solution that would allow us all to to carry forward because it was mission critical. It had The relationship had to be resolved the systems had to be resolved. Yeah. Uh, life had to go on. So uh, and it, was it was about £90 million pound a year spend from memory. Yeah. So it was a big job. Thanks, mate. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I well, well, I did. In my defence, in, in my limited defence, you know, I, I know the limit of my, some of my abilities. And I, uh, <laughs> I thought it was best that I let you have a crack at it. Just going on, you know, the, the board at the time that you then joined and, you, you know, had worked with the characters. And they certainly were characters you know what? Were, what were your reflections on that? It was, High-performing it, team, not a team, a bunch of talented individuals, or, or or what? All of the above at different phases. I remember when I first joined the board, and it was some high-performing individuals, but definitely not a team. I mean, it was a very conflictual, at times aggressive, dysfunctional, disruptive environment. I, I remember being quite disappointed initially, but. I think credit to Peter Rothwell, you know, the CEO at the time, recognised that there was a problem. And well, you'll remember we went off to the to the Lake District with a couple of uh, management consultants, trainers, coaches to sort us out. And I have to say, they did a great job. I remember that after the first 
first day, you know, they they were visibly shocked and pulling their hair out. You know, this is the most dysfunctional team that we've ever had the uh, the pleasure to try and uh, work with. And they, they sort of came out the next morning with, okay, today is uh, is national no bullshit day. You know, we're really going to get under the skin of of the problem, going to be really honest with each other. Uh, we're going to break things down and build it back up as a team. And we um, and we did. But I mean, I'm sure you remember we did a Myers Briggs personality assessment as part of this and put the results up on the chart. And there were seven of the ten were right in the top right corner. You know, the typical ENTJs, aggressive leaders, individuals, know it all, make the decisions. And then there was one guy top left <laughs> who, who was, a, a, again, a sort of powerful character, but in a bit of a world of his own. And then there was you and me in the middle. Yes. And, and, and we were I'm, I'm rather proud of that, actually. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it reflects our, our backgrounds, our education and, and, and the roles we played, that we were perhaps more well-rounded on the sort of leadership spectrum. But, more you know, conventional. Yeah, and and you know you need you need those characters, and and they were very bright, high performance people. Went on all of them, I think, you know, to phenomenally successful in in, in Indeed, careers. Yes. But there was too much clash. I mean, there was there were too many of those characters, and and it took some readjustment. And you know, I think we played a role in that in providing some balance. Uh, and they adapted their behaviours and. Within quite a short space of time, we became a really performant team. And I think, without doubt, the strongest board within the group. And it was reflected in, you know, the results we delivered and the way and we went about our business. had had and to leave by then because their aspirations were to run, uh, you know, they all became successful MDs and CEOs in, in other businesses. And it, we were lucky. They all came to us at the right time, learned something, and then they'd grown the wings to go and do it themselves. So it was never, ever going to be sustainable for a long period of time. No, but I think what we developed was a, a recognition as to the importance of the team and that, you know, we had to make compromises and adapt our behaviours and and play different roles within the team at different yeah. times and, and developed a deep respect for each other. And I think once that was in place, then we really started performing. And, and uh, great friends, everybody on that board I'm still in touch with, I really, really enjoyed it. It went through the, all the phases of... Um, Norming, storming, performing. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, at the end of it, we'd all go out for a drink. Yeah, Absolutely. So we've t- we've touched on Crossland, and I don't really feel as though we've given you know a man who we've both learned huge amounts from uh, quite a- enough airtime. I know you could have a whole podcast just on Crossland. What did you learn about from him? I think first and foremost, his his understanding of the customer that was to me the first key to his success. He took the time to really study think about and understand who, is, who, who his target customer was, what their requirements were, what they needed, what their aspirations were. And, and he set about designing products to absolutely meet and exceed those expectations. And it was, you know, a little bit in an Apple way. It was, you know, they didn't know what they wanted next. So he was always innovating, uh, but he was innovating with a really 
great insight of what the customer's aspirations were. Yeah. I think that, that, that was first and foremost. Then I think I always respect him because he didn't let his ego get in the way. You know, a lot, a lot of leaders, they, they have to be the chief executive. They have to make all the decisions. They bring people in, but they don't really give them the space to perform. He was not like that at all. He didn't need to be the big front guy. He didn't need to be in the media. He didn't need to be in charge of every team and making all the decisions. He was absolutely in control, but he gave, he brought people in with different skills, the skills required to get the job done. He made sure they got the vision and they understood the scope, but then he would let them get on with it. And So I, th- I think that was, again, a key part to his success. And then, unusual, though. Yes, in the I guess unusual in the sense that, as you alluded to, you know, most people think about great leaders, people like Jobs and Branson, you know, those bigger, big life characters. And he wasn't like that. He was quite a shy guy. Yeah. As I say, very powerful one-to-one, but not, not, not somebody who's going to light up a room. Not a control freak either. No, uh, yeah, very much prepared to let people take risks, take responsibility, as long as, you know, if you messed up, you accepted the accountability, you learned from it, and you didn't keep cocking it up, then you gave people a lot of a lot of space to operate. And I yeah. think the third element would be his intellect. And it was quite an, a unique intellect because I think he had three O levels. So he wasn't an intellectual outlier, and that's in an academic sense. But his, his attention to detail, his ability to learn and, and, and retain information and adopt a perspective that was different from the norm. I, I found it quite uncanny. He would always be steps ahead of me. You know, you, you, you know, I used to think I'm pretty bright. You know, once I understood the industry, you could think, well, we should do this. And then he'd come in and go, well, why don't we do this? And you think, oh, never thought of it like that. It, it was a, a really unique perspective. Yeah. And, you know, that, that ability to be on the detail. So not in control, not controlling everything, but he had control of the detail, the information. And I remember there were periods when, you know, I'd say be away in Spain, I'd not seen or spoken to him for a year, and I'd bump into him in an airport, you know, sitting waiting for a plane, and, and he'd go, um, so uh, how's this going? And he'd ask me some something about my job that was really specific, and I was thinking, my boss wouldn't ask me that question. My boss wouldn't have <laughs> sufficient grasp of what I deal with day to day, but he did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just a question plucked out and chucked in the air. He had in his mind an understanding of what the answer should be. Yeah. And, and uh, it was it was uncanny. You could never relax around David Crossan because he, he would, yeah, he, he was just on it 24-7. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because we, we worked a bit together, but we didn't work hugely together because I, I was kind of off doing some different things. But our... Our reflections on him are virtually identical. You know, I, you know, to begin with, I saw a lot of him. Uh, you know, my first job title was actually PA to the chairman, so I used to see quite a lot of him to begin with. But then, as the company grew, I saw him very sporadically. But he would suddenly ask me about a specific. You know, we all knew what the key KPIs were. There might be a sheet with fifty on, but you know, if you're running something, there were three or four critical ones. Now, I'd never told him what the critical ones were because he was, you know, several levels above me. But he would always ask me about the critical one, and he'd just go, "How have you learned that?" <laughs> No, so yeah. it just, 
as you say, you know, he might have only had three O levels, but I've got no idea what his IQ was, but he had an incredible memory for detail, but then didn't get bogged down by it. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, when we talk about inspirational figures, he was clearly inspirational because, you know, he, one of the things that I've reflected on, his ability to, and I think you're quite good at this, simplify complex things and focus on the important elements. And, and I've got that from him in that he managed to control a big empire by just focusing on the key things and putting in place people that looked after the rest. A great summary and a great lesson to aspiring leaders and, and entrepreneurs. Yes. You know, it's, uh, you, you've got to have the big picture, but you've got to have the detail, but you yeah. can't get bogged down in the detail. And, and it's how to, flip to... Between, how to appropriately flip between the two, which yeah. is not easy. So, you know, we talked about, you know, an exciting time in both of our lives. It's kind of, uh, you know, it's quite odd this because, you know, we didn't know one another till our mid-20s. We then spent a lot of time together in the same organisation for, you know, in my case, I think I was there 18 years. You were there a little bit longer. And then you had your midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, We've all had one of those, but mine was slightly different, but we won't go into that. Yeah, mine was early, but it was, I, I'm, I'm sure it was brought on by the stress of that IT job. Uh, yes. I, Got us through year 2000. And as I say, I'd done, I think, 18, 19 years. And it was, you know, whilst it was on paper, just one job, one one organisation, but it had been like 10 careers in, in that period and, and a period of really rapid growth. And I was just exhausted. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, I surprised a lot of people. You know, we were mid-30s working for one of the biggest travel companies in the world about to break into the FTSE 100 yeah you know, earning lots of money to, everybody looked up to us or so we thought yeah and you jumped ship yeah I just realized that my kids were growing up and I wasn't having a really present relationship with them and you know I was working as you were 60 70 80 hours a week and I thought you know what's going to happen I'm going to retire at 50 do I really want to play golf for 30 years but you know, not have a relationship with my kids. And, you know, my kids need me now in those formative years. I, I need a break and I need to have a think about things. So, yeah, I took a sabbatical, bought a house in Mallorca, moved the kids across, put them in school and spent several months just learning a bit of Spanish and drinking a lot of coffee. And so was there a plan or was it, I'm going to take a, I'm going to pause and figure out what I'm going to do next? No, it, was, it wasn't a plan. It was it was a pause. I need a break. I need a time to reflect. I need to reconnect with the family, and then we'll go from there. And and how did I'm very good at they... planning. I'm very good at planning in a business context, in a, in a role. But life plans, I've never. I've always been much more intuitive. Does it feel right? No. Okay, let's stop and have a think about it, and and then get on with it, and not really worry too much about where it's going. And in that, I mean, you know, you know, you're now in a coaching world. Did you talk to who did you talk to before you did this? Didn't have any coach or guru or mentor. We were just a very tight family, my my wife and I and and, and the kids, and you know, just sitting down with a glass of wine with my wife. And I'm not happy. I'm not feeling fulfilled. I'm not the father I want to be. I'm going to change it. And absolute credit to her, she backed it. And we just, as I say, jumped off off the grid for a while and yeah. uh you know etos were great about it and they kept the opportunities open and kept asking me to come back and go and run the north american leisure group and this that and the other but i by that time i'd realized i'd had enough and i wanted something different and life in mallorca was very agreeable the kids were really happy and i thought no 
I'm just going to uh, do something different. So that's where I stepped away from corporate life. We'll find out in the in the next episode how the, the next phase of your life went. Just a few quickfire questions. Three most important lessons. I think belief. Anything is possible. Just do it. You're only going to get as good at something if you try it. You have to step into it. And it, and it's all and the third one would be it's all about the people. You know, you can't really achieve anything without people around you. And so, you know, if you want to be successful, get good at getting on with people, working with people, learning from people, helping people. Okay. In your career at Airtours, the most challenging moment? Uh some of those disaster situations um we talked about dealing with the, the trauma and the f- families. Yeah. Um and we didn't oh, mention Sky News camping themselves outside the front door of the office either. Yeah. The media was was easier. For me, I would just step into that media trained mode. But dealing with, with the families, you know, you're really reaching into the depth of your empathy and trying to maintain the focus to help them in the only way that you can by taking responsibilities for the for the elements that are in your control. I think uh, the, the other big challenge, I, I remember very early on, my first big negotiation, I, I think it was for a, con- a ground handling contract for the airline or something like that. And, you know, I was, I was still a pretty young, pretty green. I, I alluded to this idea that, you know, we were just a small company and we were dealing with these big players. And this, this executive who was probably 20 years my senior flew up on a private jet and then a limo and arrived in my office and and I was just phased by it and I remember just making an excuse to go and make him a coffee or something and and went into the bathroom and splashed a bit of water on my face and I, I just felt overwhelmed and I yeah I just had to you know, give myself a quick talking to get back in there as I say go back to the belief step into it and it's all about the people and got through it and, and ended up being very good friends but it's easy early on to feel overwhelmed by things but yeah. you just got to build your confidence and you know rely on your your skills greatest inspiration undoubtedly in that era you know david crossland learned so much from working with him and and watching him yeah most grateful for i guess the whole opportunity really and it does feel like an opportunity i mean i'm sure i delivered value along the way and worked bloody hard to uh, to achieve what i did with air tours, but I always felt that it was an opportunity. And I, I think in that respect, you know, the faith that Hugh Collinson put in me when he decided to firstly invest in, you know, my further education and then, you know, putting me in the roles that he did when there was no proof that I was ready for them, but he he put his confidence in me. So, yeah, very, very grateful for, yeah. for Hugh. Uh, to be fair, subsequent, I mean, uh, Hugh then stepped back from being managing director, but subsequent managing directors also saw saw something in you to to keep promoting you so it wasn't just Hugh but absolutely Hugh was very very good to to both of us I would say mm. key to your success you talk about belief is that is that nature or nurture I think a bit of both but I think yeah belief is there but I would say certainly in this era it was adaptability and work ethic I had the ability to really put it in. And when I was struggling with something or I didn't understand something, I would put the hours in and, and find out. And yeah, like yourself, being 
very adaptable and being able to to take on different roles and different situations, deal with people of all different creeds and cultures and get the job done. Yeah. Essentially, one of my mantras has always been high for brains and attitude in that, you know, you can always do something with people if they're bright enough. And I'm not talking about being able to pass exams. I'm just talking about, you know, intuitive ability. Uh, and if people are prepared to put hard work in, if you've got those, then you can do something with it. But if you're missing either, then it, it's usually not a great recipe. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's been a, a fascinating uh, gallop through your 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 first half of your of your business career. Uh, really enjoyed listening to you there, and uh, look forward to hearing uh, what happened after your midlife crisis. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it was uh, strangely emotional actually um, thinking back to some of those those experiences. I mean, very very happy memories, and and thank you for uh, walking me through it and uh, for being such a great uh, interview. Thank you. Maybe it's my new career. Who knows? <laughs> all right. All the best. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Cheers.